and welcome to the stories of Northern Life from the Sault Ste. Marie Museum. We're going to pick up where we left off on the story of John Prince. We were just after the 1837 rebellion in Upper Canada. Colonel Prince was highly decorated from this rebellion and came to be known as the most popular man in the Western District, apparently. However, Prince made a grave mistake, for he ordered five prisoners to be executed by firing squad without any form of legal trial. He experienced some strong judgment for this order, but took many attempts to regain his popularity and safety. In 1839, he strengthened his support by introducing a bill to grant £40,000 to victims of the rebellion, which was passed in 1840. With the approach of the election in 1841, freeholders in both Essex and Kent solicited him as a candidate. He chose Kent and won easily. In Detroit, where the attacks originated from, Prince's enemies placed a $1,000 bounty on his head. Interestingly enough, Prince took out ads in Detroit newspapers telling of hidden man traps and sprung guns on his vast estate. The ads worked, for no attempts were ever made on Prince's life. But the government still felt that something had to be done about Prince. Then remembering that Prince was always asking for a judgeship, Sir John A. Macdonald, Canada's first Prime Minister, appointed Prince to the judgeship of Algoma. This caused the feud over Prince to quiet down. Then, on November 30th, 1860, Colonel John Prince then became the first judge of the Provisional District of Algoma. When John Prince arrived, he was 64 years old. July 5th, 1860, a Thursday. John Prince wrote in his diary, Rose at six, very low-spirited packed up the remainder of my things, and sent them to the depot, which place I went at seven, took leave of Albert there, and left by the car for Collingwood, where we arrived at twelve, then took the steamer, Plowboy, and reached Owen Sound at six p.m., a beautiful harbor. Thank God I am getting better. The county about Owen Sound is very beautiful. I am troubled with a slight sore throat. I turned in at 9 p.m., quite low-spirited. The next day, they reached Shabawaning, now Killarney, in the night. They headed to Little Current to pick up a passenger, headed to the Sioux, too. They reached Bruce Mines at around 9 p.m. July 7th, a Saturday, is where he finally made it to Sault Ste. Marie. Quote, he was grateful for the trip, was safe and beautiful. His slight sickness had gone away and he was pleased with how comfortable it was here. In contrast, he writes about how uncomfortable, cold, windy, and dull it hears nearly every single day after that. Though Prince was not alone, he arrived with his dog Spur and one of his sons, Septimus Redyard Prince, who was born in Essex County on May 20th, 1838. Septimus came to begin a new surveyor's job that was given to him on March 2nd, 1860, by the Department of Crown Lands. He started his job on July 27th in Grocap. Septimus and his crew rode 20 miles to the land in which they started to strike through to reach their camp. 
This job is very significant today because it was the job that called for the formation of the townships in the Algoma district. One of those townships was Prince Township. Once Septimus completed the staking out of this township, he named it after his own family, hence the name Prince Township. He loved his job and he was proud of his work, and so was his father, John Prince. The rest of the Prince family refused to follow John up north. You can imagine how this grew, John's loneliness and self-misery. In the meantime, though, Prince needed a home for himself, so right away, he got to work. He built his new home on the beautiful park-like estate near the shore of St. Mary's River. They named their home Bellevue Lodge, meaning beautiful view. Today, this area is known as Bellevue Park. So you kind of have Prince to thank for the park's name. Prince lived in Bellevue Lodge for 10 years, holding court regularly and living life of a country gentleman. Hard to believe that Bellevue was country land, but it was a decent distance from Queen Street and other establishments at the time in 1860. Even with his beautiful view, by August 1867, Prince petitioned for a transfer to the Toronto area. The request was refused, of course, and he lived the rest of his life here alone and unhappy. He kept a diary and wrote every day of his life here in Sault Ste. Marie. We have two years of his life, 1860 and 1867. He spent a lot of his time writing letters, cleaning his guns, hunting, fishing, and complaining about the weather and lack of sport and game here. I'm going to read a few entries. August 9th, 1960, a Thursday. A very warm and fine morning. At half past nine, I am starting to walk along a new route to Root River. A rough road. I took my gun and fishing rod. Got to McCoy's, a Métis, by two, and shot a sparrow hawk on the way. Saw nothing else. It rained, thundered, and lightninged. So, so I was not able to try Root River much. It is merely a brook filled with logs and rough timber and driftwood in all directions and is most difficult to approach. Forest on both sides of it. An English angler would think it most ridiculous to attempt fishing there. You can't walk 20 yards down the stream without being stopped by driftwood. I caught one trout only and gave it up in despair. Walked home by 8 p.m. through the rain some part of the way, and the road being clay, very sticky, heavy, and bad. Stopped at Egan's and Shannon's on my way. Heavy rain all evening and went to bed at nine, tired, disappointed, and disgusted. I fear this is no country for sport. September 11th, a Tuesday. A cold day and much the same as yesterday. At my table all day and very much engaged there in completing the foregoing six letters to the ministry, touching upon everything wanted at the Sioux and desiring them to refer to my former correspondence and send me prompt and definitive answers to everything. It is very likely the last time I shall write to them upon these subjects, for I am fairly tired and disgusted with writing to them. 
In the evening, I took a walk down to Grant's Shaw, not a duck or anything else. Home to tea and read till half past nine, then to bed, low-spirited. The next day, he started his entry with a fine day, busy at my table as usual, all day long, in writing and reading and reflecting in my lonely solitude. Most days were like these. But there were some that he could feel excitement and actually compliment this country. On September 20th, 1860, another fine day. After breakfast, I rode Mr. Wilson's old horse again and stopped at Mr. Bennett's. There, Bennett and I walked into the township of Cora and examined the lands there and saw some of the finest lands, both as to soil and timber and pure water, that I've ever behold. None better for family purposes anywhere in Canada. We were walking in the woods from 11 till 5 p.m., and I was excessively fatigued by the time I got back to Bennett's. His mother, a fine old widow lady, and highly respectable. Back to Mrs. Hetherington's to tea at 7 p.m. Mr. Hendricks sat an hour with me in the evening, and I went back to bed at half past nine, very much tired and vastly pleased with the lands I examined. Then again, just a week later, on September 27th, he wrote, A miserable day. Nothing but heavy rain from daylight until 1 p.m. But the wind was pleasanter than it was yesterday. Octi occupied for three hours cleaning guns for me. I helped him. My legs pained me a good deal in the night. I fear are indications of dropsy, but I must not. However, I hope I shall be able to submit with Christian fortitude to the visitations of the province come what may, for I am almost sick of life. I am heavily disgusted with this world. Octi and I took a short walk in the evening, but saw nothing to shoot at. Home to tea at 6 p.m. and read for an hour or so, then to bed at half past nine, tired and low-spirited. My legs, I think, are failing me. And again, he practically lived the same day today for the next 10 years. But he also had a job. For a long while, the courthouse was actually the home of the private fur trader named Charles Ermitanger, whose home still stands today as a museum. You know it, Ermitanger Clerk National Historic Site. Sheriff Richard Carney owns the home at the time. He bought the home from David and Margaret Pym. Prince, as the chairman of the board of Magistrates, formally instructed the house to be a courthouse. The rest of the board was compromised of Major Jos Mayor Joseph Wilson, John M. Savage, Albert Pello Slater, and Weymouth Mackenzie Simpson, according to the records of the old court sittings discovered in the vault of Crown Attorney W.G. Atkin, K.C. On December 11, 1860, the grand jury formally impaneled and the court by Constable Francis J. Hughes with Andrew Hines were appointed constables at the first session of the court. John Carney was the foreman of the first grand jury in Algoma, and one Charles Byron was the first prisoner to appear before his court. His offense being, quote, 
committing of a nuisance on Bay Street. It wasn't until 1866 the Sioux's first courthouse was actually constructed. On November 30th, 1870, Colonel John Prince died at his home at the age of 75, which is quite old for this area and time. In his will, he ordered that his body be buried on Strawberry Island, which is a small inlet not more than 20 feet from his Bellevue Lodge. Today, a tombstone marks his grave where Prince's remains are buried on Strawberry Island, which today is a part of Bellevue Park and no longer an island, really. The grave site is still there, but the tombstone marking his grave at Bellevue Park is a replica. The stone reads, The mortal remains Colonel John Prince, first judge of the District of Algoma, born March 12th, 1796, at Hereford, England, died November 30th, 1870, at his residence on the mainland opposite this island, where, at his own request, here deposited, the memory of the just be blessed. The original tombstone marked his spot for 120 years. Now we have the original tombstone on display in our skylight gallery alongside his epaulets. Epaulets are shoulder pads, basically. They have coiled sterling silver fringe and crowned with a star emblem. They are passed down through the Lepesh and Buchanan family connections of Maria Hetherington, Prince's housekeeper, became owner of Bellevue Lodge by mortgage upon his death. The epaulets came to life on the death of Thomas Lepesh, a nephew of Mary Jane Lepesh Buchanan, the daughter of Thomas and Elizabeth Lepesh, and were donated to the museum by one of their descendants. Bellevue Lodge itself was torn down in a state of repair in 1923, but before it fell into despair, it was lived in and used by others. It was actually the birthplace in 1887 of Henry Hamilton, a prominent lawyer here in Sault Ste. Marie, who represented the area in the House of Commons between 1935 and 1940. On Sunday, September 13, 1959, a historic plaque commemorating Colonel John Prince was unveiled at the Sault Ste. Marie's Bellevue Park. This plaque is a part of a series around the province by the Department of Travel and Publicity, acting on the advice Archaeological and Historic Sites Board of Ontario. So, I hope you get out for a walk at Bellevue Park and find the plaque in John Prince's sole gravesite. Our staff at the museum love to point out the irony in Prince's wishes to be buried at Bellevue. He chose that location to be far, far away from people and in his own little bubble of Bellevue. Yet, hundreds of people visit him daily, whether that be intentionally or not. So, go say hi to John Prince, the farmer, soldier, lawyer, politician, and first judge of the Algoma District. And then come by to the Sault Ste. Marie Museum to see the original tombstone and his epaulets. Thanks so much for listening and come back again next week for another episode. Ciao for now.